Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted and honored to welcome to our podcast today, Ambassador and President of the American University in Cairo, Francis Riccardiondi. Uh, the Ambassador served as the United States Representative to Turkey between 2011 and 2014, and has had some extraordinary postings across the Middle East and Asia, including in Egypt and Afghanistan. Uh, welcome, President. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Hafner. It's a real pleasure to be with you. At the helm of the university during the pandemic must be challenging in ways that you and we as a society have not anticipated because this is a once in a century event. What have been the impacts on your campus in Egypt and in the educational space, President? Well, we're part of the a, a global industry that's been uh, directly and severely impacted by the pandemic um, in, uh, of course, obviously negative ways, but maybe some positive ones too, if you're a positive and uh, confident institution and, and uh, person, you look for the, the ways you can make progress. What it has done is uh, accelerated a lot of changes that were already underway. Um, of, of course, the, the negative impacts are um, have been painful. The flip side of the negative ones of, of keeping people apart, whether it's in our industry or others, the flip side of that is it makes us appreciate the magic of higher education and where that magic comes from. It's not simply uh, reciting facts or, or even uh, stimulating interaction online. Those things are good, but it makes us appreciate the, uh, the value, the magic, the, the beauty, the importance, the impact of everyday interaction in person. With all that we've learned, about going online and how to how to uh, overcome the tyranny of, of time and place by using online means. Still, that human interaction at the uh, physically present level, I think, remains at the core of um, higher education at it, at its best. At least the, the the really beautiful part of it, the part that most stimulates and and motivates people. What are some tricks of your trade? Um, I would imagine that there are diplomatic tools, understanding over the course of human history and your own career, that you have encountered impasse. You have faced this kind of adversity, not in the form of an infectious disease uh, that is novel and untreatable, um, but in a breakdown of communication. So are there, are there any specific um, mechanisms for discourse or learning that you have found useful to impart to your community and in your exchanges, which have probably been in the virtual means for the most part over these last months? That's a, yes, that is a very uh, insightful and important question. In fact, where I am today, what I'm doing today at AUC goes to the, the heart of that question. When there are forces in the world in a broad sense or in a particular situation that divide people, that promote otherization, uh, forces that are, I would say, anti-civilizational, that promote bigotry and hate, the one of the tricks of the diplomatic trade are really no secret at all. It is search for that that brings 
people together or might bring people together in powerful common interests, powerful uh, shared interests uh, at, at a human level. It could be art. You know, it could be common interest in solving certain problems like medical problems in today's world. Um, for me, even in my previous life as a diplomat, I set aside the talking points very often that are, you know, the official position, my official position versus your official position. One does that in government, of course, in government to government contacts. But what I used, whether in Egypt or Iraq or Afghanistan or Turkey or the Philippines was... Um, the things that fascinated those other peoples about America, Americans, things that they either knew or thought they knew or didn't know or knew that were wrong. And I found that one of the most um, magical and effective ways of bringing people together was through education. No surprise, it turns out that all young people, all students everywhere want to learn and are excited by learning. All parents everywhere want their children to grow and develop and learn. And when you can uh, expose people to very different cultures, languages, uh, geographies, histories, ways of thinking, problems that they maybe haven't even encountered in exactly those forms in their home environments, that's when the magic can happen. Um, and that's what international education is all about it. I found it just a great tool of diplomacy. We could argue about other things, but when we would talk about, about uh, you know, science or, or anything in the humanities, uh, art, communications, this really brought people together. And that's something America has always been really great at. President, you see where the intersection is of, of international education human values and problem solving. With respect to the American University in Cairo, its history and its relevance to public policy challenges in Egypt and around the world, obviously the pandemic is front and center, but how are you particularly poised um, and how is the university particularly poised to grapple with some of these most salient contemporary challenges? Well, we have a, a huge privilege as AUC, the American University in Cairo, in being uh, welcomed and part of the fabric of Egypt now for a hundred years. Um, we are something that we might be relatively ordinary. It would be good, I think, even in the United States, and we're accredited as an American institution in, by many different accrediting agencies. So we're fully up full up authentic American institution. But you know, there are three or 4,000 American institutions of higher education in the United States. There's only one of those in Egypt. And that makes us very special. A lot of uh, Egyptian students over the years have gone to the United States or other countries for that, that special uh, effect of international education. AUC offers an authentically American educational experience here and we have license to do that from the government of Egypt. I don't mean an official license. Well, that too. We're accredited by the government of Egypt. What I mean is we have a very different approach to education and higher education here. One that is based, it is a liberal arts education. We are private. We are not for profit. Uh, of course, we comply with Egyptian laws and, and cultural values, and, but 
we focus on critical thinking. That is to say, inquiry-based learning. That is so radically different from the uh, traditional approach in this part of the world. And it, the Egyptians appreciate it, the, the officially appreciate it. The government of Egypt has um, you know, accredited us. And, and we have many, many uh, more Egyptian students applying to come to us than we can accept. So that makes us special. And I could go into greater detail if you want. And on the flip side, it makes us special in the other direction. We're very special for American students who want a validated, authentic, accredited American education in whatever field. And, and we do the sciences and engineering and business and, and those pre-professional kinds of things too, in addition to liberal arts. Um, but we're the only American institution in the heart of the Middle East. I, I shouldn't say the only ones. We have, we have uh, sister institutions that um, are uh, the American University in Beirut that we much admire. They've been around over 150 years to our 100. But we're the only one in Cairo. The Egyptians call it Umma Dunya, uh, mother of the universe. So we really are at the heart of the Arab world, and you might even say the Muslim world. When you think of the goal of diplomacy as educating and informing to bridge divide, to build consensus and compromise. Um, I wanted you to offer our listeners insight into that trajectory of how diplomacy and negotiation has evolved in your recent tenure as a diplomat and a high-ranking ambassador of the United States um, to Egypt, to Afghanistan, to Turkey. Um, in your career over this last decade, um, prior to assuming the presidency of the American University, how, how had diplomacy operated from the starting point and how had it evolved or maybe even devolved by the time you retired from the Foreign Service? Sure. Um, that's a, a great question. And I've, I've actually thought about that a lot and I've spoken about it a lot with my former colleagues. You know, when I came into the Foreign Service, it was the uh, latter part of the Cold War or maybe even the height of the Cold War. It was the late 1970s. I graduated from university in the early 70s. And I, after getting an international education myself, thanks to the Fulbright program, I started in Turkey right on the front lines of the Cold War in uh, 79, 78, 79. In those days, diplomacy was still, still relatively classical, what you would call affairs of state. In the United States, we call our foreign ministry the Department of State. That is to say, most relations between states were conducted by officials who were officially designated by the governments of those states to convey official messages through official channels. Now, in the United States, of course, we had, we had come into our own as a nation on the world stage, really with World War II in the mid-20th century. We took a, a, a different approach. We always built communications into, um, into our diplomacy. We recognized with things like the Voice of America, the need to communicate uh, around the world in real time with people, directly with people not just government to government, but directly with people. So 
even um, as early as the second half of the 20th century, American diplomacy had put an emphasis on uh, government to people and people to people communications uh, in addition to the, the classical state to state work. So it, it, it never, at least in my experience, even from the beginning, it wasn't entirely about talking points sent to you by cable from Washington and then the young diplomat goes marching into the foreign ministry or some other ministry to deliver an official message on instruction. Of course, there was some of that. But the more fun part for me always, and especially to answer your question, Mr. Hafner, especially to the latter part, at least American diplomacy and most countries' diplomacy, when most effective, was really about people-to-people communications, working with uh, people in your profession, mass communications, journalists, diplomacy became much closer to your profession of bringing large numbers of people together, uh, broadcasting, point casting, some retail level communications, government to government, but then mostly broader communications. So that's in a broad way was what changed. Along comes not only the internet, um, cable television, but then in, in uh, late 2007, early 2008, the iPhone. And um, that really transformed how the world communicates uh, with each other. Anyone could be a, a broadcaster. And American diplomacy had to, and all other countries, I think, too, had to adapt to that new reality of social media, not just classical mass communications, where you do an interview on a major national uh, network or even a satellite TV network, um, but on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, uh, all, all the other social media uh, uh, media that are out there, those now became very important either for one, uh, an individual to master personally, and I'm no master of those things, or to work within with, with very smart people who are, who are great at using it. So I'd say that it, it's become closer to uh, the communications business and, um, and diplomats have, uh, younger contemporary diplomats are, are very good at this and very smooth at it and very natural at it. The older ones have had to learn it. People like myself. So to give our listeners a timeline, you were U S ambassador to the Philippines from 2002 to 2005 uh, then you served in Egypt as U.S. ambassador to Egypt from 2005 to 2008. Um, you were deputy ambassador to Afghanistan from 09 to 10, uh, and then ambassador to Turkey from 2011 to 2014. Your career spans this period of great acceleration in technological change like you just alluded to. So my question is not specific to the region as much as it is specific to the technology has it had the effect of making things more insular, people more withdrawn, not as engaged and not as introspective? And even if folks would not like to admit it, that kind of introspection um, internally within a country and then in exchanges multilaterally or bilaterally is fundamental to the art or practice of diplomacy. Wow. <clears throat> That's another really... Uh... You could teach a course in this, I think. You, you, you've got so many insights in, in one sort of broad question there. Um, this period, the last sort of decade of my public 
service. Um, although I think of what I'm doing now in private higher education is also kind of a public service. But my last decade, say, in government also saw not only the dramatic changes in technology that led to greater and greater popular participation in national and international conversations, but it also coincided, especially in this region, not only, but especially in this region, with the uh, erosion or, or absolute failure of states as such, not just revolutions, but disintegration of of states. And so whereas before public communications were considered very often, not just considered, were by law controlled by states, the states have lost that. There, there's still some state um, you know, media in, in this part of the world and other countries. But now individuals, even where there are strongly uh, influenced uh, state media, now individuals can communicate with each other uh, locally, uh, regionally, internationally. That's had a profound uh, effect. And as you've just suggested, it, it, you know, it has done contradictory things at the same time. It has had really paradoxical and ironic effects, something that um, one would, might have thought rationally would bring people together and shrink our world um, as, say, cable TV did or satellite television did or uh, cheaper and more frequent international physical travel. At the same time, uh, it's certainly uh, social media has done that. The Internet has done that in that we can now teach classes with an instructor in California having students in Cairo or vice versa in real time with real interaction, not just watching a recorded lecture. Th there are real ways that it brings people together. One can now sample art and literature from all over the world and in a guided way. There's so much that brings us together. Smart uh, brains, inquisitive minds uh, can deal in almost any language, along with the international uh, internationalization and explosion of social media, though, the importance of English as a medium of a communication has only grown. Other languages, too, are well represented on the Internet. But the, the, if you are born into speaking English as a, a native, you've got an, a huge advantage right from when you first become verbal, you can probably communicate with people around the world who are either have English mastered or are working on it. So it should have been something that brought us together. And in many ways it has, and it has enriched the human experience. I would say it has made it an exciting time to be a human. If you enjoy uh, knowledge, learning, science, problem solving, and especially doing it, whether alone or with others. Here's the flip side, though, as we've all come to recognize, particularly with political developments over the past uh, period, let's say, uh, even in the United States, the peculiar way that social media has developed has also allowed people to go into their little niches and to stay, if they want, within their own little echo chambers. And the way some of these media have developed has been to reinforce those echo, echo chambers so that people who only want to stay with or communicate with like-minded people, uh, whether because of, for positive reasons, like a shared passion for this type of music or that type of art or this type of um, uh, study of science, th they can do that for positive reasons or 
for those who are caught in, let's say, social malignancies or individual, um, how to say, sort of introspection of people who are not using it in, in positive ways, but who are caught in some kind of a, a problem from which they cannot escape. They can find help through social media or they can find fellow sufferers who exacerbate their, their anger, let us say, or feelings of victimization, um, their tendency to otherize, uh, to, um, to wallow in bigotry and um, perpetuate it. That's the flip side of, of the coin. I think the positives outweigh the, the uh, negatives. I think it's a challenge of diplomacy and, and education, certainly, uh, to, over, to exploit the positives and mitigate the negatives, if we possibly can. Americans do recall uh, President Obama's visit to Egypt, and more recently, you hosted Secretary Pompeo. Um, the connection to Egypt um, from the United States and represents... Um, as Secretary Pompeo said himself, the potential for reinvigorating diplomacy. And there have been some advances during the Trump administration of uh, American-led U.S. Um, Middle East uh, diplomatic uh, measures. Um, as we anticipate the um, Biden administration, and how American diplomacy will further will further evolve from the Obama administration to the Trump administration now to a Biden administration. What are you hopeful about? Um, what aspects of history over the last decade, in terms of what transpired between the Obama speech and the more recent U.S. presence in the region, uh, is useful to take into consideration? as uh, Biden assumes the presidency. Well, the region has undergone a lot of trauma on its own, and people will debate whether, you know, what role the United States played in either mitigating that or exacerbating that. Um, uh, myself, I, I, I've always been sort of confident and optimistic about the United States and its role in the world. Uh, Americans, are, I think, are great learning society. And we learn from mistakes. I hope we learn the right lessons and, and, and not the, uh, the wrong ones. Um, lessons of the value of engagement as opposed to the, I would say, the futility of withdrawal from the world. Uh, we really, it seems to me, don't have much choice. We, we share this planet uh, with many other people with shared interests, for example, in, in preserving the planet. Uh, mitigating the negative effects of, of climate change, mitigating the, uh, the international uh, spread of disease, um, uh, spread of extremism, violent extremism. There's so much that, that we can only work on if we work with our, our like-minded people around the world, even if we don't get along on certain other things. And I, I believe the United States has always been good at that. We were among the leading architects of the, uh, uh, I know this, word, this should not be controversial, but 
the phrase rules-based international order <laughs> became controversial. It shouldn't be, in my view, because if there are no rules, there will always be some rules. And if they are the rules of the, the law of the jungle, it will not be a very good world. If the rules are set by uh, peoples working together, whether through direct country-to-country uh, -country, uh, negotiation and engagement or through multilateral organizations, I think it will be a, a world with more people living uh, more prosperous and decent lives and better able to cope with truly global um, threats that afflict us, whether it's a COVID-19 or rising sea levels or desertification, uh, masses and masses of displaced people due to conflict, refugees and other internally displaced people. So I'm optimistic that, um, you know, under the Trump administration, he set out to disrupt a number of things that probably needed disrupting. And we've learned from, from those. I think an incoming administration, from everything I hear the president-elect saying and having said, and his incoming team having written and said, it's clear that they mean to engage effectively, respectfully, um, and in, in uh, numerous ways with the rest of the world, whether dealing with our adversaries and competitors on the one hand, but also dealing with other countries who share our interests in problem solving. I think Egyptian-American relations fit very much in that context. What is the most compelling thing any of our listeners can do to support the cause of diplomacy and specifically human freedom and dignity? I would answer that um, specifically uh, regarding the experience I'm now having here in Egypt. I mean, the answer, uh, the, the glib answer, I suppose, a simple one is it depends on the situation and where the listener is is situated, literally, what country, what circumstances, what can he or she, uh, what resources does he or she have at, at his or her dis disposal. Here in Egypt, um, and, and I guess answering also more broadly, um, if you're, I would say, playing the long game, that's what diplomacy does. You try to put out immediate fires, maybe and deal with immediate crises, but whether it's diplomacy or the business I'm in now of higher education, we're really making long-term investments for the future. It is highly impactful, but progress is incremental and, um, and becomes clear only after time. It is investing in people. So the, the, best, the best investment I think anyone can make, whether it's here in Egypt or probably in many other places, if you have the privilege that we have in AUC, and if you're in a place like Syria now or, you know, parts of Afghanistan or, you know, even countries like China and so forth that are maybe stable but don't have the freedom we've got. We have this amazing ability to take in uh, something like a thousand or, or 1500 new students each year as undergraduates, many more as non-degree students who are looking to advance their professional careers through non-degree programs, we take in a th um, we, we have five and a half thousand undergraduates and a thousand graduates, uh, mostly master's things. We can touch the lives of those young people and some twenty or thirty thousand who come with us for short courses in sort of business and professional related skills. 
we can touch the lives of those people. And on, on the basis of our style of learning, our approach to learning, um, the idea that people don't just come here to learn how to make a living or become, you know, be a business major so you can go into business or learn engineering so you can become an engineer. President, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you so much for the privilege of uh, being with you.